I'd like to ask that you please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. That's the passage that was just read for you so well. And that's what we're going to be considering today and would help you immensely to have it open in front of you. I want to give you greetings from Levittown Baptist Church in Levittown, Long Island. Uh, our church thinks of you often. We pray for you regularly. Every month we rotate in three churches that we focus on and we pray for them. And you are part of that regular rotation but beyond that, as John said, we have a long-term connection. Even before this church was planted, I had spoken with those who were going out and being sent from North Shore Baptist Church, where I was on staff at the time, and had many, many, many conversations about the beginning and the origins of this church. And I'm so thankful for what the Lord is continuing to do here. Uh, let's turn our attention to the Word of God. But before we do, let me just open us in one word of prayer. Our God, we thank you that through your word, you communicate to us that you have not been ambiguous about what we are to know or how we are to perceive you. Lord, I thank you that by your immense grace and your love, you have spoken and you have done so through the eternal word of God, and that today you have given that word so that we might be transformed and conformed into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, would you do that today for us through the work of the Holy Spirit? Make us like Jesus, we pray. In the areas where we are unlike Christ, chip those things away. Convict us. Bring us to repentance. Cause us to be transformed. And Lord, for those who are in the room who are operating faithfully in the ways we will consider from the text today, Lord, I pray that you would bring strength and encouragement, bolster us. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to share in your joy as we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we have already heard the word read, the word from Genesis chapter 13, and we are being dropped into the middle of the story of Abram. This is before he became Abraham. So I'm just going to ask for your forgiveness already this morning because I know with supreme confidence that there are going to be mistakes that I make in terms of calling this man Abraham multiple times, even though in the text he's still Abram. So please forgive me if I mess that up. But when studying the word of God, the there is at least some requirement for us as scholars of the Word to read the Bible backwards. We must read the Old Testament, and chapters like this one, in light of what we find in the New Testament. We must draw on the broader revelation of the New Covenant and bring it back in to see how it displays the reality of what's going on in the much more primitive passages that point forward to the coming of Christ. So it's absolutely necessary that we jump a little bit around and a little bit ahead to reveal about what we know concerning Lot. And that's how we can understand a lot more of the entirety of this story and see how it fits into the unfolding drama of God's covenantal love. But before forging ahead, we need to understand three things about this man Lot that is presented in the text. We know a lot about Abram. We know a lot about him as Abraham. But you might not know a great deal about his nephew, Lot. The first thing that you need to know about him is that Lot is not a villain. Unlike most major figures in the Old Testament, Abram doesn't really have a villain character. Moses has Pharaoh, and then Moses has the complaining people of Israel. Elijah has Ahab. Daniel has earthly rulers and dominions and kings. David has Saul before he is king. And then really David's main enemy is himself after he is king. Everyone seems to have an enemy. But Abram doesn't really have a villain. Lot is not a villain. He is something else entirely. We know that in part because the second thing we need to know about him is that Lot is 
righteous. Now, perhaps that is a difficult, difficult pill for you to swallow. I can't think of any person in the entire Bible that is described as righteous that commits more disturbing and egregious acts of evil than this man. But we must read this chapter that we are looking at and all of Genesis that we are looking at in light of the New Testament words of 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, which says, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Three times in two verses, Lot is called, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a righteous man. Lot was not a perfect man. In fact, Lot is not somebody we can even identify as a good man. What this must indicate is that he is a saved man. He is a saint of the Old Testament. And it makes the most sense to me that his transformation into being a child of God must have taken place before he separated from Abram. I believe that to be true because at this time in the history of the world, there is only one person that we know about that followed the Lord. There is only one person we know about that spoke to the Lord. There is only one person we know about that had revelation about the nature and the character and the attributes and the person of God, and that was Lot's uncle, Abram. So it is likely that before they separated, Lot must have already come to know and follow and believe in this God. Lot can be easily written off, if you're not careful, as some kind of a raw pagan like, like Esau. He was somebody that appears, if you're not careful, to be someone totally disinterested in the things of God. But if you read it in light of the New Testament, it displays for us the fact that he was indeed a follower of God. He just wasn't a very good one. And for that reason, you and I can probably relate to him a great deal. The third thing that you need to know about Lot is this. Lot is a foil, F-O-I-L, foil. Authors, and particularly screenwriters, have become very fond in recent years of using this term, foil. If you know what I'm talking about, please raise your hand. Like a handful, that's great. That's more than, I preached this not that long ago at another location, and I don't think anyone knew what I was talking about. Let me describe what I mean. According to the screenwriter's manual, Wikipedia, uh, this is what a foil is. Quote, in any narrative, a foil is a character who contrasts with another character, typically a character who contrasts with the protagonist in order to better highlight or differentiate certain qualities of the protagonist. So in a movie or a show, almost every scene is going to have more than one character. But you're only supposed to mainly learn about one character, so there will be other characters usually one specifically, placed in that scene, meticulously designed to reveal a specific aspect of that person's identity. For example, uh, The Office is one of the most well-known and watched shows in the world. Michael Scott is going to be in the room with Jim Halpert so that you can see that Jim Halpert is effortlessly cool, and you see that in order to reveal the fact that Michael Scott tries so hard and still can't be cool. When he is in the same room, when Michael Scott is in the same room with Dwight Schrute, that is supposed to reveal that they are both uncool, they are both strange, they are both awkward, 
but one of them is lazy, Michael Scott, and the other one is not. In both cases, you are given an opportunity to see a characteristic or an attribute of the one character by shining a light on them with the differentiation of another. In other words, whenever you have a foil in a scene, the point is not to notice their similarities. The point is to identify the differences. And that's what's going to take place with Lot. That is why he is so highlighted in some portions of the book of Genesis. Lot is never presented as a villain, nor is he presented as the main character. He is here to bring to light some of the distinct characteristics and what is going on at play in the heart of Abram. And this morning, we're going to consider three truths from this chapter that we can glean by seeing how the Scripture uses Lot as a foil for Abram. Here's the first thing we need to notice. Point number one, blessed are the peacemakers. Let's begin this point by getting our grounding as far as the cultural significance of what's taking place in this event. It can be incredibly easy for us to look at a chapter like this one and breeze by it in a moment without ever noticing it as anything significant. In fact, it appears to us as nothing more than a footnote to the bigger story of God's covenantal work in Abram's life. But nothing could be further from the truth. Like Inception, this event was a watershed moment within the life of Abraham, which itself is a watershed moment in history. Our story begins with the problem of Abram and Lot having too much stuff to live together. There's just too many animals, too much livestock to feed, and there was too little grass to go around. So why is this the case? Where did all of this excess come from? Well, in the previous chapter, after God had told Abram to go and he would be his shield, Abram went to Egypt and and then Abram lied. He lied to the Pharaoh and he said, that woman over there, that is my sister, not my wife. And Pharaoh, thinking that she was very attractive, ended up giving a bride's price, a dowry to Abram of a lot of wealth, including a lot of of animals. And so he gives these things to Abram so that he can then marry Abram's wife. Messed up situation. If you want to know how that story all concludes, you should read chapter 12. But ultimately what you need to know is this. Initially, God gets them out of the situation. Initially, it probably appeared to Abram as he was getting out of Egypt and back into the Sinai Peninsula. It probably appeared to him that he just got away with something great. Wow. Imagine, I I got out of Egypt with all of these animals and my wife and my life intact. Little does he know at that moment, as he goes back into what will become the promised land, that that seeming blessing has turned into a problem. Just as a side note, there is one other thing from Egypt that is in Abram and Sarai's possession at this point. We learn about this possession a few chapters later. Her name is Hagar, the Egyptian handmaiden. Where did she come from? Well, there probably weren't that many Egyptian women just wandering around through the land of Canaan by themselves that could have been adopted into the camp of Abram. Hagar likely became the maidservant of Sarai when Sarai was living in Pharaoh's house. That is another sermon for another time, but for now you just need to keep in mind one thing from all that I've just said, and that is that sin has very long-range effects. 
You might not see the effects of it immediately. You might never see it in your lifetime. But every single time you sin, it is literally impossible to calculate the infinite ripple effects radiating out from that event through time. Now, Abram and Lot are in an awkward situation. This is not just a matter of servants fighting with each other. That you can handle. Just get some biblical counseling and they'll be fine. They are at the point where they literally must separate their camps or the animals are going to starve to death. This is a math problem where the only solution is division. Let me try to help modernize this problem a little bit and contextualize it to where we are today. There is a unique form of selfishness that I have observed, and it comes on display when somebody dies and they leave behind them an inheritance. Perhaps you've observed this as well. One of the saddest things that I have ever seen is the way a family will tear itself apart because everyone is scratching and clawing to claim the scraps that are left over when a loved one dies. They say that, let's just say for an example, you have a close relative, and your close relative dies this afternoon. This noon, uh, afternoon. My condolences. Um, in a few days, you're told that your relative had two houses, and you probably already know about these houses. You are aware of what they look like, and one of them is quite literally your dream house. It's the one that you have always wanted. It's the one that you have always imagined. When you think of what it looks like to be successful in this area, you want, that's what you want. And I don't know what you want. Perhaps you want some kind of a spacious, modern, luxurious, perfect location, multiple indoor parking spaces, 37th floor of some building in Manhattan. Maybe that's what you want. Maybe you're like, I want to get out of this city eventually, and you're looking at like one of those massive spread out properties with 120 acres and 36 bedrooms and 18 bathrooms somewhere in the South. Maybe that's what you're thinking of. Whatever it is, whatever your dream house is, that's the first home. And the second one is a rinky-dink, falling apart little house that is dilapidated with no roof. It's become a dwelling place for rats and birds and good for nothing except for to tear it down and rebuild. And now you are told that you are going to receive an inheritance. But there is another distant relative that is also going to receive the inheritance. And this distant cousin, who is not closely related at all to the one who has passed away, is roughly half your age. And the will that was left behind is explicitly states, you each must get one house and you each must live in that house. You cannot sell the house. And if you don't choose, you both get nothing. If you were in this situation, what would you do? I think you would work hard to try to convince your cousin that the bigger, nicer dream house of your own should be yours. In Abram's case, they had to divide or both would get nothing. But instead of pulling the, I am older than you, or I am wiser than you, or I have watched over you, or I changed your diaper card, Abram chooses instead to do something that was unheard of in his day. He just says, you choose. He says specifically, let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now, to this day, wars are being fought over the rights to dwell in this specific location. To this day, they are still battling over control of this spot. And Abram just gave it away. There was no doubt. There was no doubt in anyone's mind when Abram said, hey, you get to choose which of those places he was going to pick. Nobody doubted that Lot was going to take the nicer land. Lot becomes a foil here for Abram by revealing that Abram was much more preoccupied with peace 
than he was with personal gain. There was probably no doubt in Abram's mind that that land was lost to him forever when he said, you choose. He probably knew that by attempting to make peace, it would come at immense personal loss and cost to himself. But the fact is, making peace always requires humility. It usually requires self-sacrifice, and it typically necessitates giving up your rights. This has never been more clearly displayed than it was in the person of Jesus Christ. He was worshiped in heaven by angels since the time they were created. Yet, he stepped into his own creation. He didn't just become like us, he became one of us. The act of adding a human nature, just think about that. Think about math in your mind. He had one nature that was divine, and he added to it a second. He added to it the human nature. You would think, that makes two. That is addition. But the way that it's actually spoken about in the scripture is never quite like that. In fact, it's almost described as subtraction. It is described as a kind of loss. I realize that sounds like border, borderline Trinitarian heresy, so I want to be very careful about how, what I'm saying and very specific about my meaning. But listen to what it says in the scripture, Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself emptied himself, emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It's not spoken about as addition. Jesus taking on human nature is described as a self-inflicted draining of something. But what? That question really matters. What was drained? What was it that Jesus laid down when he came here? It wasn't his deity, certainly not, for he was fully God. And it wasn't his intrinsic glory, for Jesus was always glorious and always worthy of praise at all time. That's why he doesn't make people get up when they worship him. And that's why when he was born, the angels sang, glory to God in the highest. Paul is speaking about the extrinsic glory of Jesus. He always retained the intrinsic glory, but he laid down the extrinsic glory, the displayed glory, the glory that would make people either collapse in fear or draw near to him in awe. It is the glory that would have killed Moses if Moses observed it with his human eyes. Jesus came and laid it down. Jesus came to make peace of a much more personal kind than some kind of a dispute over grasslands. He came to reconcile a relational breach of infinitely greater division than an uncle and a nephew having employees getting into a scuffle. Jesus took inestimable effort to bring peace at great expense to himself, and that expense culminated in the crucifixion. Colossians 1, 19-20 describes it like this, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Reconciliation equals peace, whether on earth or in heaven. Making peace, how? By the blood of his cross. Peace is costly and Jesus is the great peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. Are you a peacemaker? Peacemaking is not for the faint-hearted. Being a peacemaker is one of the most challenging things people will ever do. Making peace with those who are by all rights your enemies will require intentional moves towards the other person with a heart like Christ, with a heart of self-sacrifice. But making peace is worth it. Do you remember how that beatitude concludes? Blessed are the peacemakers 
for you shall be called sons of God. That statement is an explosive reality. If you genuinely believe that that is true, and you even understand an infinitesimal fraction of what it means, then you would always make every effort imaginable to be a peacemaker, as far as it depends on you, literally as far as you can possibly go, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. To be clear, being a peacemaker does not make you a child of God. Rather, by acting as a peacemaker, you are identifying with the Son of God and being identified with Him because you are acting like Him. We have a peacemaker who gave up much more than land to make peace with us. Christian, 1 John 2.16 tells us that whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. Is there any relationship in your life that is broken that you might find a way to make peace, even if it requires self-sacrifice? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power that can propel that kind of peacemaking mission. Point number two, seek first the kingdom of God. One of the reasons why the division of this land is such a big deal is that up to this point, Abram was never told what land he was going to receive. God did tell him he would give him an inheritance, but to this point, he does not know if this is his final stop. As far as he knows, this is what God is going to give him. The land that he was selecting now was going to be the land that he ended up with for the rest of his life and for the generations of his future offspring. This might be his family inheritance for all generations. So how in the world was he going to end up with the run-down, junky, pathetic land and still be cool with that? How does that happen? Hebrews 11.9 makes it clear that Abram wasn't worried about this land because he was looking forward to something way better. It says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise as a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, if you jump down to verse 13, it continues and says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. For people who speak like this make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. A couple of years ago, there was a commercial campaign, an ad campaign, for an alcohol brand that asked an incredibly brilliant question. What are you chasing? That's actually a really good question. I have no idea how that should push you in the direction of drinking alcohol, but what are you chasing? What are you chasing? Well, how do you even know the answer to that? There are a lot of ways. You can consider how you respond to loss, how you respond to failure, whether or not you are generous, how you fill your time. What are you seeking? What kind of kingdom are you trying to build? Lot, does, Lot here serves as a foil for Abram that reveals Abram didn't actually care so much about this land because Abram was chasing something. His actions reveal that he was chasing a heavenly kingdom. 
Now, I truly believe that all of us, every one of us, even the best of us in this room, have barely scratched the surface of what it means when Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We are in the New York City metro. Many of you probably work in the city, a place filled with the most ambitious people in the world. We are typically chasing a million things at once. Often those things are good things. And in this room right now, there are probably a hundred thousand goals that have been clearly defined and openly stated in the minds and mouths of people sitting here. You have goals. You have goals for your job, for your retirement, for renovations, for vacations, for reading, for writing, for travel, for advancement. You have ambition. And often what that morphs into is seeking our own kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and with it there is the added promise that all of these things will be added unto you. Not that you are necessarily going to get all of the things that you want in your wildest dreams, but that you will certainly always get something better. For example, Abram allowed Lot to choose what was clearly the superior land. Nobody questions which side of that line was better. Abram graciously accepted the land of notably lesser quality, but in the long run, which one of those turned out better? Abram was told, Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. What happened to the land that Lot chose? Well, look down at verse 10 once again and get a glimpse into the future. Notice that it says, And Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, literally saying, it's just like the Garden of Eden. And then he says, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zohar. And then there's this little parenthetical statement. You'll see that in there. Moses adds this, just in case you weren't aware. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The lands that Lot chose were eventually salted with fire and brimstone in a furious rage that snuffed out the breath of every lung in that land, human or otherwise. If you think the air quality in New York has been bad lately, like if you think the sky is nasty out here, you cannot even begin to imagine the cataclysmic destruction that arose from the holy wrath of God in his divine retribution over the land that Lot chose. Lot's inheritance was destroyed, but not Abram's. He sought first the kingdom of God, and the result was an eternal inheritance in a city built by God himself. When you are seeking the kingdom of God first, you are likely going to end up with less stuff on earth than your ungodly peers. That is true. If you are generous, you are going to end up with less money. That is true. If you are hospitable, you are going to get your things broken. That is true. If you operate how God calls you to operate, you will lose earthly things. That is true. But you need to know that there is a great reward for seeking first the kingdom of God. The things, the objects that you love in this world, they are not going to matter the slightest bit to you on your deathbed. Now, I have not been with that many people when they have died, but all of the people I have been with when they died or during the last stages of their life before they have died, not one of them talked about their bank account. Not one of them talked about their early achievements. Not one of them talked about how far they advanced in their jobs. Not one of them talked about their retirement plan or their funds. Nothing like that comes to mind. They are all considering other and much more substantial and oftentimes eternal things. You are likely going to outlive the love of the things that you chased after for so long. This past week, literally yesterday, actually technically early this morning, I landed 
from uh, returning from uh, helping my grandparents move from Kansas to Kentucky. And they had moved out of what they considered their dream home. They built a house on a hill that was massive, on lots of property, where they had their own pond and where they had their own hunting opportunities. And they had all sorts of things. And their house, their living room of their house was bigger than the floor plan of my current house right now. And that's just their living room. They built the house that they loved and they lived in it for 30 years. And now they've outlived it. Now they have to move where they can be closer to someone who can care for them. The things that you put all of your effort and energy into chasing, you will likely, if statistics hold out, outlive the things that you love. The luster and shine that they had will eventually fade away, potentially in this very lifetime. If you are looking and trying to build up your own reputation, you will likely outlive your own reputation. Seek first the kingdom of God, because by seeking for for his kingdom first, it will result in receiving the kinds of gift that hold their value forever, even into eternity. The good news is that when you seek first the kingdom of God, you get exactly what God wants you to have, which is far better than what you want you to have. I think we heard a good testimony of that earlier uh, when Pastor Park was talking about his ministry in California. It's very important that we understand that just like Abram, we are to seek first the kingdom of God. The third point today is that bad company corrupts good character. There's a blink and you missed it statement that we find in verse 12. If you have your Bibles on your lap, please look down again to that and see what it says. It says, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley. And here's what I want you to see. Notice this. And moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, just in case you didn't already know what was coming, Moses adds in verse 13, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Just in case this is your first read-through of the Bible, just in case you are completely unfamiliar, he wants you to know in advance, before we ever get to the destruction of that city, he wants you to know that these people are considered by God himself to be at the peak of human rebellion. In the 1940s, a man named Theodore Newcomb scientifically documented a, a sociological phenomenon that has come to be called the proximity principle. He wrote about this in a study called Group Dynamics, Research, and Theory. He named it that because sociologists have a tendency to be terrible at naming things, and they lack in all imagination. Um, If you're a sociologist, I'm sorry (laughs) for you. Um, But the principle goes like this. You are going to become like the people that you spend time with. You will begin to absorb their habits. You'll begin to absorb their mannerisms and their pastimes. You may even pick up their accent. I just came back early this morning from being with my family who are from Kansas. And as soon as I got home, my my wife told me last night that I have already begun to sound like them again. Now, I slept, so it's washed off of me. I don't sound like that anymore. But I can't help it when I am with them. I begin to sound like people communicate there. It comes back to me automatically. But I speak like I speak now because I live here. I do not have a Midwestern accent now because I no longer live in Kansas. I communicate like I do now because I am with people who speak more similarly to how I speak now. What I want to encourage you to think about is this. You can observe this on your own. If you are around people that listen to a particular kind of music, you are likely going to begin to listen to that kind of music. You can already tell exactly who people are close with by what people laugh about. Just listen to the jokes that people make, and if they're laughing, and they're all laughing at the same thing, and you're like, I have no idea what they're talking about, that be, that's because they are with each other, and you are somehow still on the outside of that circle. 
but you become like the people that you are with. The proximity principle teaches that you become like those with whom you associate with. In the next chapter, Abram is going to have to rescue Lot. But the next time we actually see Lot have any agency in the story or carry out any action on his own, he is not in a tent any longer. Instead, he is sitting at the gates of Sodom. He owns a house in the city of Sodom. He has not just moved into the city, he has moved right up the chain of command and become one of the most powerful and recognized men of the city as an elder in Sodom. We have seen repeatedly in this chapter that Lot's intentions were not informed by godliness or by wisdom. They were informed by a desire for temporary earthly gain. So if I had to guess, I would assume that his thinking went something like this. He probably thought to himself, I've got lots of animals, but I don't have lots of other stuff. And I would like to have a lot of other stuff. So in order to have other stuff, I need to be close to people that have other stuff so I can trade animals with them. And it just so happens to be a city right there. So maybe I can move my tent closer to those people so that I can get more stuff. And then, as we see in a couple of, in the next chapter, he's going to get kidnapped by a glorified, uh, glorified mayor of a small city in that time. He was called the king. But he gets kidnapped, and then Abram has to come and rescue him. And so after that, he's probably thinking, you know, hey, this would be great to have some walls so the next time one of these kings shows up, I don't have to fight for myself, and I don't end up showing, uh, end up in one of their prisons again, and I have to get protected again. So instead, he just moves into the city, and he probably dismissed every single step. He justified sinful connection with wicked people. 1 Corinthians 15.33 tells us that bad company corrupts good character. Bad company corrupts good character. Notice that with the first two points, I intentionally just took the first half of a sentence and I made that the point. And then after a while, I gave you the second half of the sentence that comes after the comma. There is no comma here. This is the sentence. Bad company corrupts good character. There is no ifs or ands or buts or nors or fors or accepts. It just is true. Bad company corrupts good character. But, snap, foiled again, Lot serves as a foil once more, not for Abram this time, but this time for Jesus Christ himself. For just like Lot, righteous Jesus moved his tent toward a wicked city. Jesus moved towards wicked people. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Or to translate it more literally, if you want to take the actual Greek word and bring it into English, the word became flesh and he tented among us or tabernacled among us. He didn't just move his tent near, he moved it among us. He did not just become like us, he became us. Isaiah cried out to God, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in a land with people of unclean lips and yet Jesus came and lived in that exact same place with those exact same people, yet there was no deceit in his mouth. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here's the reality. The problem is not just proximity. Jesus did come near to us. His proximity was close to us. The problem is not proximity. The problem is our fallenness. We worship the incorruptible Christ. 
He was tempted in all ways as we are, in ways that are far greater than we have experienced, by a far more greatly deadly enemy than we can understand. And he did that after fasting to the brink of human capability. Even so, he did not sin. Jesus is the better lot. He is the only one that could walk into a land of overindulgent sinful people and avoid joining the party. Spoiler alert, when judgment eventually does come, the Lord is going to kill all the people of Sodom, but he's going to bring Lot out without a scratch. But Jesus, he experienced the exact opposite thing. He came into the world, and in his case, he was the innocent one who underwent the fury of God's wrath in order that the guilty might be delivered unscathed. Last word. Consider again what it says about Lot in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. It says, He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. If Lot, Lot was uncomfortable and disgusted and tormented by the actions of those people, How much more must Christ have been tormented over the never-ending parade of sin that he saw in every person around him on this planet? Mary and Joseph, his surrogate parents, sinners. His siblings, sinners. His disciples, sinners. His church, sinners. All of you, sinners. Me, a sinner. Literally everything, everyone except him, sinners. But the incorruptible Christ came. And he tabernacled among us, and he did not become like us. He did not abandon us. He did not cancel his mission when people, even like Judas, sinned against him. You need to know that God loves you. He came to tabernacle with people like you so that he could make people like you, just like him. God demonstrates his love towards us in this way, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. This is good news, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that Jesus Christ came and he dwelt among us. We thank you that he came and he did not become a sinner like us, but instead he came and made us righteous. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that Jesus came as the ultimate peacemaker, the one who reconciled God and man. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can be reconciled to him by grace through faith. And I pray, Lord, that today every single person in this room who needs to operate with a peacemaking heart would do so, that needs to stop chasing the things of this world would do so, and then needs to turn their life to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith would do so. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.